Well, this is uh, Meredith and I's first Mother's Day, where she is a mother. And that is a wonderful thing. When I was younger, as a child, I would celebrate Mother's Day by writing letters to my mother, promising all sorts of good things, things that were forgotten as soon as the day ended. But now, as a father, as an adult, it is now my responsibility to teach Ezra how to write those meaningless letters. He's not there yet, though, so. Uh, would you pray with me one more time as we prepare ourselves to hear the Word of God this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we ask that you would meet us this morning through the preaching of your Word. Father, I ask that you would allow me to be your servant, to be able to communicate what you would have to speak to us. Lord, I know that this message is important because it has impacted me, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do a work not only in me, but also in your church. May we hear from you. May we also respond to you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, and I love you, and I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Some questions deserve to be asked again and again. They are the type of questions that might be taken for granted, answers to which we once settled long ago in our minds. But perhaps in re-asking and answering this question, it reminds us of a significant truth. Perhaps we have not taken these questions for granted. Perhaps we need to ask these questions again, hoping that the answer might ring anew in our ears. They might, they might lead us not to something we have forgotten, but perhaps to a new direction or a new decision in life. You've asked these questions of yourselves before. These are those big questions. What do I really want to do for work? Why do I come to church, to this church? What do I believe about God? These are the big questions, questions that we ask over and over again because they are worthy of being asked again and again. Well, I do want to ask a very important question. It's none of those questions, but it is on the same level of those questions because it is an important question even if it is a simple question. It is the question that comes to us from the book of Hebrews this morning, which is this. Why did Jesus have to die? Was it really necessary for Jesus to be arrested, tried under false charges, and crucified on that hill? Why did Jesus have to die? We would not be the first to ask this question. In fact, Jesus began to speak plainly to his disciples about this reality. And in Matthew uh, chapter 16, it tells us about this situation. Jesus is now talking openly about his coming death. And Peter one of his closest disciples does not an understand the answer to that question. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Peter did not just disagree with Jesus. He did not just say, Jesus, are you sure about this? I don't know if you want to talk about this. I, I don't know if maybe you misunderstood what's going to happen. It says that Peter rebuked Jesus. No, you will not talk about that. That will not happen. 
Even the disciples, those closest to Jesus, could not understand the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? I want us to ask that question this morning. Because it is a very important question, and my goal in asking this question is to hear an answer, an important answer that may remind us of some things that we perhaps have forgotten. Or it might send us in a new direction. Or perhaps you have actually never asked that question before because it has already been settled in your mind, or perhaps because it is unimportant to you. But I would like to say to you that this question is one of the most important questions that you and I could ever ask in our whole lives. Because in answering this question, we not only understand all of the Christian faith, or what the Christian faith is, we begin to understand all of our life as well. So would you ask with me this morning, why did Jesus have to die? And in order for us to find an answer to this question, would you turn to, with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. The book of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. If you are there with me, please follow along as I read these words. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. This is the way wills work. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated, was brought into being without blood. For when every commandment of the Lord had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people with the blood, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered to once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, our answer comes in two parts. The first, from the first half of this passage, verses 15 through 22, is this. 
Jesus died so that we could become his people. Let me state it another way. Jesus died so that by his blood, he could bring about the new covenant, a new, better, and necessary way to relate to God. That's what verses 15 through 22 say. Now, instead of reading this passage yet again, because we've heard it read several times and my time is short, there are a few key words that I want you to underline, either in your Bible, in your electronic device, or in your mind. Some of us don't like to write in our Bibles, so in your mind, underline these key words. Mediator, new covenant, eternal inheritance, redeems, transgressions under the first covenant. Say those again. Mediator, new covenant, promised eternal inheritance, redeems transgressions under the first covenant. Now, some of you may look down at your Bible and say, You basically just told me to underline verse 15. Yes, that's true. Because verse 15, with these key words, helps us to understand the rest of this passage. It is the key that will unlock the meaning and significance of these passages, but these words cannot be taken for granted. If we do not take for granted the question, why did Jesus have to die, we cannot take these terms for granted. Maybe you've heard these terms before, here at church or in song. Maybe you have passed over them without giving them any mind, but we have to focus on these words to understand the significance of Jesus' death. So let's think about them. But let's work backwards. Let's start with transgressions under the first covenant. Well, let me state a reality that is assumed by this opening reason, that by his death we become God's people. You and I have a need to relate to God. At the very essence of what it means to be human is our desire, our longing to be connected with God. Someone here might say to me, ah, are you sure about that? Is it really true that you and I have a longing to connect with God? Yes, you and I do. All of the major questions we ask as human beings are signposts for our longing to God. They are signposts to our desire for meaning and significance, signposts to our desire for security and rest, signposts for our desire for justice and peace. All of these desires are rooted in our longing for a relationship with our Creator God. We who are created in the image of God hear what N.T. Wright calls echoes of a world beyond the material world. And these echoes only find their voice in Jesus, the revelation of God. We were made for relationship with God. But there is a problem. Our hearts hold evil intentions and our hands have committed evil deeds. Though we were created to enjoy and be connected with our creator God, we are not worthy to stand before a holy and perfect God. But this Holy and perfect God is also full of mercy and love. 
He too desires to know and connect with us. So God carrying in his heart a desire to fellowship with us, to be connected with us, provided a covenant for his people. That was the first covenant. A covenant is a type of relationship. I don't want to take any of these terms for granted. A covenant is a type of relationship. Since God is holy and without evil, we are not. And because God intends for a special and more intimate way of relating to us, the only way to have a relationship with God is to have a covenant type of relationship. Now let me try to explain the difference between a covenant type of relationship and a non-covenant type of relationship. Imagine you have a friend who is single. You have a second friend who is also single. Those of you who are single in the room probably are thinking, when does that ever happen? A friend with two single people. Let's assume that this is the case. You have two single friends and you imagine to yourself, these two individuals would be a great match. So a few days later, you talk to your friends and you say, hey, maybe the two of you can get together for a date. And to your astonishment, they say yes. And so they go on a coffee date. And after a few days, you see one of your friends and you say, hey, John, how did the coffee date go? And your friend John says, it went well. She's great. But it didn't really work out. We really, we really didn't have a connection. In fact, I'm on my way to a coffee date now with someone else. How would you feel? Well, you might be disappointed. Maybe you were sure they'd hit it off. You were sure there was a connection there. But... It was only a first date, right? That happens. Not everyone is compatible with one another. They hadn't made a pledge to one another. Now imagine the scenario went very differently. Imagine you had these two single friends and you connected them together and they hit it off. In fact, after a few months, they become engaged and after a few more months, they become married. And you see your friend John, who you haven't seen in a while since the wedding. You say, hey, John, how's married life? John says, well, it's okay. You know, she's a great person. I really like her, but I'm actually on my way to a coffee date right now with someone else. How would you feel? Quite differently, right? Your two friends made a commitment to one another. They were married. This relationship was of a special kind. One with an expectation of loyalty and faithfulness. When we think about a covenant relationship, we are thinking about a special kind of relationship between two individuals that is made on the basis of a pledge of loyalty and faithfulness. It is a relationship of a special kind. This is the way we relate to God. We relate to God by way of covenant. It is the kind of relationship that is based on a pledge of loyalty and faithfulness. You know, sometimes you and I act as if we can interact with God on a non-covenant basis. As if we've taken God for a coffee date and we can just walk away. Maybe I should pause here for a second. Because some of us have wanted to interact with God, but only interact with God on our own terms. When it's convenient for us. When I don't have much else to do, I can call God up and say, hey, you want to have some coffee? No strings attached. That's not really the way we can relate to God. God demands a special kind of relationship, 
a covenant kind of relationship. Relationship with God is a lot more like the relationship between a husband and a wife. The two become one. We are committed to one another. Breaking the relationship is not as easy as saying, well, this wasn't much fun. I won't be calling you back. But to break a covenant relationship is to act unfaithfully. But even this marriage analogy doesn't fully capture the covenant relationship with God. You see, in marriage, two individuals come together as equals. They are on equal standing. But when you and I enter into a covenant relationship with God, we, who are broken and sinful, are entering into a covenant relationship with a God who is holy and perfect. So when God first established His first covenant, He did so by blood. Blood was used to guarantee and purify the people. That is what this passage is saying. We've already heard over and over again from the previous sermons that this was a way to initiate the relationship. It was a way to remove the stain of sin from the people's lives. Only blood can pay for our sins. Only blood can make us pure. Only blood can initiate the covenant relationship. But this was the first covenant. Almost immediately after what happened, it's described here in our passages about the sprinkling of blood. This was recounted in Exodus chapter 24. Almost immediately after the people entered into this covenant relationship, you know what they did? Exodus chapter 32 tells us, just a few short chapters afterwards, they acted in unfaithfulness. They asked Aaron, make us a new God. And when that God came out, do you know what the people said? Behold your God who brought you, who rescued you from Egypt. They lived and acted as if they had another lover. This is in fact the metaphor that is used in Jeremiah which initiates this conversation of a new covenant. Generations afterwards, the problem still persisted. And God says, I have been a faithful husband to you. And you have been an unfaithful spouse. You have lived with other lovers. You have prostituted yourself. But I will still love you. And I will make a new covenant with you. And I will give you a new heart. I will give you a heart that will be fully devoted to me, where you will truly be my people, and I will truly be your God. See, the first covenant could not do what it intended to do. It could only cover, it could only mask what was happening in the lives of the people. You see, the first covenant can only mask the symptoms of the sickness. It cannot deal with the disease that was always intended to be the role of the second, the new, the everlasting covenant. So in the beginning of verse 15, it tells us, that Jesus will be the mediator of this new covenant. It would be Jesus, the Son of God, who is fully God and fully man, who will be able to bring about a new way of relating to God. How would that be possible? By his own blood. Every covenant needs blood. And Jesus, being perfect, would offer his own blood 
so that we could have this new way of relating to God initiated and a way of purification provided for us. Covenants between a holy and perfect God and unfaithful human beings have to be marked by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no new covenant. There can be no relating to God. Because of our sin, blood, only blood shed in death can get us out of our slavery. See, that is where we are. We are slaves. That is what the word redeems or redemption means. We use that word so often that we forget what metaphor is being used in that word. Redemption was a way of thinking about something that happens in society. Think about it this way. Imagine a society where there is no bankruptcy and you owe a massive debt. How do you get out of debt? Well, you might choose to enter into slavery. And hopefully, you would be able to work off your debt over time. But here's what happens. When you're a slave, you don't have the means to provide for yourself. So the person who owns you gives you a place to live. They give you food. But that doesn't come free. You've got to pay for that. So now, when you're working off your debt, you're not actually paying off your debt. You're only paying the interest that has been accused. It's like putting all of your expenses on one of those credit cards with a ridiculous interest rate. It will never get paid off. The only possibility you have for working off your debt is if a relative found out about your situation and they were rich enough to step in for you. What they would do is they would say, listen, I will pay off the debt. But that's not all you owe. There is more. But even the extra interest that you've accrued, that is not all. You have to pay more than the debt to be able to free the person from slavery. That is what redemption means. You and I were slaves. We had a debt because of our sin, and that sin continued to amount interest. It continued to, 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 to grow. And this debt can only be paid by blood. We needed a better redeemer who would not only pay off the debt that we owed, but would also be even greater than that to give us the freedom that we longed for, the freedom that we needed. Jesus is our mediator who redeems us from the transgressions under that first covenant, that transgression that is disloyalty, that transgression that is unfaithfulness. Only the blood of Jesus can redeem us. But why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't the blood of calves and goats keep providing us cover? No, we needed a new covenant. The old one could, could not provide that eternal inheritance to be God's people forever. To be able to see that city of glory long in front of us and say, I have an ability to enter into that city. Only a new covenant could provide that for us. See, we are longing to reach that eternal city. And that is our inheritance, to be named children, people of God, and to be able to enter into that city. But how could something like that happen? How could we be guaranteed something eternal? So that brings us to our second reason. The first reason why Jesus had to die 
because he had to make us his people by way of the new covenant. The second reason is this. Jesus had to die so that the guilt and power of sin could be removed from us forever. Jesus died so that by his blood we could be forgiven and stand before God pure for all eternity. There's a sacrifice made once and for all. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Boy, time is going. Let's look at a few verses here. Thus it was necessary for the copies, this is beginning of verse 23, of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves need to be purified with better sacrifices. For Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear on our behalf. He doesn't enter repeatedly, offering himself, but he has offered himself once. Verse 26, the end of it, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The first covenant was just an incomplete picture of what was to come. The tabernacle with its decorations and its furnishings, those things retelling the story of creation and the story of Israel's redemption from Egypt was just a representation of the real thing. The real thing is that place where God dwells, the heavenly realm. And one day, the heavenly realm, and we who are God's people but still living in this earth, will become one. We will enter into the very presence of God. And that entering, according to the first covenant with its high priests and its sacrifices, was just foreshadowing a day that is still yet to come. And we, who have been called God's people by His death, would go and be in the very presence of God. That is why he is standing before God on our behalf. He is standing there as our replacement. He is standing there, he who knew no sin for us, who only knew sin. So that when it is our turn to enter into the presence of God, we will be welcomed as God's children. But how? Why? Because his sacrifice is not like the old sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was offered once and does not need to be offered again. It was a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Let me use an illustration from another preacher by the name of Nigel Benyon, who puts it this way. He says, imagine yourself in grade school yet again, and you've been given detention for disrupting the class. And so after the teacher says this to you, you say, Miss, is it all right if my friend takes his attention for me? The teacher looks at you and said, your friend? You mean the one who was disrupting the class with you? No, he, he can't take the attention for you. And then you say to the teacher, well, Miss, can another student who has not disrupted the class, who is in fact in another class, can that student take the punishment for me? The teacher says, no. You cannot force someone who is unwilling to take your punishment. So there you sit in detention. The preacher says that unlike those examples, we have a better sacrifice. One who is without guilt, but one who is willing to take our place. One who offered himself to take our place. 
One who is equal with us, but also equal with God. And he himself stands for us so that we might be able to enter into the presence of God. It is recounted that when the high priest returned from making the yearly sacrifice, the people who had been waiting eagerly for the return would stand there hoping that he would come out because he knew if he came out, that meant that God accepted the sacrifice. And when he came out, the people rejoiced. The author of Hebrews says to us, we are also waiting for our Lord to return. Not because our Lord needs to make another sacrifice, but because our Lord will say, now it's time to enter with me into the Holy of Holies, into that place where God dwells, where we can stand face to face with our Creator God. We can enter into the very presence of God. That is what we are waiting for. That is what the return means for us. It is judgment, yes, because all will face judgment, but for those of us who are called the people of God, judgment means reaching that day where we will finally have our longing secured. We have it met, and we will be in the presence of God. By His blood, we have been washed clean and enter into the presence of God free from guilt, free to receive the love of God. Because of His death, we are free from the guilt of sin and freed from its power over us. That is our crisis. It is not that we are just guilty, but we are in fact guilty. It is not just that. It is that we are unworthy. Uh, let me repeat this. We, we are guilty, yes. We are unworthy apart from Jesus. But that is just one problem. Sin also has a power over us. That is why the old covenant could not work, because it could only mask the issue and prevent it from, from extending itself. But every year you have to prevent it, you have, you have to provide a sacrifice. Now the power of death has been defeated. And though we will not see perfection until he returns, the Holy Spirit, which is God's Spirit, now resides in us. And we who are loved by God become lovers of God. We act in love toward God. We obey Him not because we have to, not because we are worried of what's going to come around the corner, but because we are lovers of God. God has given us a new heart. We are in a loving relationship with this great, awesome God. Why did Jesus have to die? He died so that we could become his people. A people who, according to this passage, are beloved and forgiven. Because he died and shed his blood for you and I, we can enter into the presence of God as his children, made pure and free. Before I take my seat, let me leave us with a few implications for this. Maybe my time has gone too far, but let me just give you a few more things. You and I all desire to know God, to have a relationship with God. I want you to ask this question. How will you be able to stand before God on Judgment Day? How will you do it? I want you to think about that question, and I want you to exhaust all of the options in front of you. Maybe I can find an animal and provide that blood for me. Well, that won't do it. Maybe I can just work hard enough. Maybe I can do That won't do it. 
There is only one way. The blood of Jesus that can wash us pure. How will you stand before God on Judgment Day? If it is apart from the blood of Jesus, then you will not be able to stand in the presence of God. Number two, I want you to know that God has a desire for you. And in this desire, he loves you. Maybe you've come with the nagging feeling that there is some sin in your life that you are ashamed of. You feel like it's too much. You look around this room and you think, they've never dealt with something like that. Maybe they can be forgiven, but God cannot forgive me. God is unwilling to love me. This passage teaches us that God is in love with you. He wants to love you. He has offered a forgiveness once and for all. Accept that forgiveness. But number three, and this might be true for most of us in the room, if you have been called a child of God now, if you have accepted in faith this relationship with God, I need to remind you that you are now a lover of God. And sometimes, like that person on Facebook stalking their old love out of curiosity, you go back to the way things used to be. You go back to former idols and former loves. We act in ways that should not be true of us who are children of God. What sin have you been holding on to? What idol is trying to seduce you? Old loves come back. But you are now a child of God. And you are in a covenant, loving, faithful relationship with the Lord. He has given you his spirit so that you might be able to resist the devil. Flee temptation. Those idols can only promise things that they will never give you. Things that only the Lord will give you. Those big questions, satisfaction, rest, security, peace, justice, those only come from a relationship with God. Put away those idols. Put away those former loves. And live in faithfulness to God. The old hymn asks the question, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? There is nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It was for you and I that he died, so that we might become his people, beloved and forgiven. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made. We thank you that you are our mediator. We thank you that in you we can stand forgiven and can long for that day when we will be in the eternal city unhindered by sin and death, unhindered by separation. We will be able to walk in faithfulness and in love with our Creator. We thank you, Jesus, for our sacrifice. We pray these things in the name of, your, in the name of you, Jesus. Amen.